Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. So welcome everyone. Today I will be speaking with Scott Munn and Joe Motz with Munn Architecture based in Granby, Colorado in climate zone six and seven. Scott is the principal of Munn Architecture and Joe in an integrated team approach was the project manager and uh, one of the uh, integrated architects for the Kirsch Stroop Passive House. As you may know, I spoke with Matt Kirsch and Carrie Stroop in episode four and with Enrico and Mariana of EMU Systems, the Passive House consultants and the leaders of this pilot project in episode five. Now we're getting the architect's perspective and on architecture in general, and also Passive House in particular, here with Scott and Joe. So welcome to the BuildCast. Really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you for having Absolutely. us. Yeah. So Scott, why don't Thanks we start? Uh, and you give us a little bit of history about Munn Architecture. Sure, that sounds great. Well, again, my name is Scott Munn, principal of Munn Architecture. Um, we are a small little creative studio located in the heart of Grand County and in, in Granby, Colorado. Um, however, those boundaries are not um, limiting us from doing work uh, anywhere. Um, anybody wants some uh, good creative and sustainable uh, architecture. Um, we've been around for uh, almost, what, 15 years now, 14, 15 years. Um, I was uh, a native of Colorado, and, um, you know, we're just, uh, we're just having a great time um, doing the stuff that we love up here. Great. So, Scott, how did you get into architecture? You know what? It's a kind of a long story, but um, I um, was, was always a kid that was fascinated with, you know, how things uh, were put together and um, you know at, at, at probably the dismay of my my mother um, I ended up taking a lot of things apart to find try to figure out how they uh, how they work but uh, inevitably never really put them back together um, so that was always something that that was intriguing to me and um, in fact um, you know I, I started actually doing mechanical drafting or mechanical drawing um, in um, in sixth grade um, they had those courses where I was going to school at the time, and ever since then, I was always been enamored with um, with drawing and, and figuring out how to, um, you know, create buildings in in 3D or imagery in 3D. And um, when I finally made it to college, um, I actually started out as a romantic poetry major. Um, however, I, I learned pretty quickly that I didn't really know what I would be doing with that particular um, degree, and um, architecture kind of came back into my um into my mind and I, I found a great great balance there with respect to the technical aspect of of how things work and how things tick and and kind of the, the freedom and flexibility and, and creativity i guess um you know with with actually poetry and and you know I, I i do watercolor sketches and things like that as well and i it just happened to be a perfect marriage and you know i, I couldn't be happier yeah 
So it sounds like you maybe like the artistic and design side of architecture more than uh, the uh, engineering, I guess, side of, of it? You know what? Our architects are famous for, for knowing a lot about a little. Um, we, we try to pull in, you know, the best consultants um, in our projects all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm dangerous with respect to being able to think that I know the right thing. But, um, you know, a team effort all the way around is the only way, at least from our studio, um, to, to put out a successful project. But, yes, we, we don't mind stretching the boundaries a little bit of, you know, what art is or what space is or, you know, how art and space and, and light can all come together. Um, but, you know, how to uh, carry a, a large cantilever um, with a, you know, 120 pound snow load um, is definitely not my forte. Yeah, yeah. And where did you go to architecture school? Yeah, I went to the University of Washington um, in Seattle. Um, it was, went to Gould Hall, had some incredible um, professors up there um, that, you know, I, I, I just, it was just a wonderful program all the way around. Um, and, you know, with respect to a certain type of, uh, of architecture that was woven, I believe, within the program, at least when I was going there, um, is kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of a Pacific Rim um, type, um, I guess, underlayment with respect to what we learned. And I guess what I meant, mean by that is that if you've ever been at the Pacific Northwest or, or um, you know, any part north of, uh, I'd say, Marin County in California, um, we don't have a lot of sunny days in those particular areas. And so the architecture that we were taught was definitely a reflection of the, um, you know, lack of direct sunlight. It was more about actually opening up the walls and bringing the, bringing the outside in um, and a light type of architecture um, that, that I believe that that school was uh, really wonderful at. And, I've been able to hopefully, you know, continue what I learned with with the type of work that that we do here. Does that mean that uh, it's your designs are window intensive? Well, what I would say is that they they can be, and they can they can um, you know open up to the outside, um, and you know you try to you, you try to make that you know that that transition as as seamless as possible, at least in certain circumstances. What I'd like to say is I think that our that our work is appropriate to the um, you know to the to the area that we're in um, with respect to the amount of fenestration itself. What, what we actually have to deal with are beautiful, big, expansive views um, with some of the settings of our of our work. However, we're mostly now trying to actually limit the amount of direct sunlight in certain areas so we don't overheat or um, you know make a uh, make a space unfriendly to actually be in because of the direct sunlight. So a little bit different, but yeah, similar. Yeah. Did um, this experience with uh, the passive house that you uh, designed, did, did that bring this uh, window equation into more focus for you? Or did definitely, you... yeah. Go ahead. No, yeah, yeah. why don't you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it definitely did. Um, you know, so in this particular project, you know, it was a little bit of finding that right balance of utilizing some of that uh, passive gain within the house in order to do some reduction in the, um, you know, mechanical services. Um, at least that's what we were, um, you know, balancing um, with, um, you know, with Enrico and his team um, from, from, my, from my understanding. And, you know, there's beautiful views. I did Carrie and, and Matt's house. 
we've got a you know beautiful open expansive you know perfectly set kind of at the south facing direction across a valley to the mountains beyond and that was extremely important for them to feel as though uh, while they were in those spaces that they could capture those views however yes it was more of a technical um you know window conversation than, than we i think have normally great um and that's not necessarily because of the passive house building uh concept but more because you wanted to actually bring in passive solar engineering into the equation that be correct? that's correct absolutely okay. yeah i mean it's 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 all um you know a, a passive home again from from our experience, at least working again with 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 Enrico and his team, um, you know, we've learned a lot about um, you know how the passive um, you know home or this particular type of um, you know passive system can work, and you know windows and fenestration are you know just as important as you know our understanding of the of the R values that were created in the in the wall systems. Um, you can you can get a lot of passive gain. Um, you can you can you can use different types of you know reflective material on the glazing itself in order to do some reductions as well, and then roof overhangs and orientation and the amount of window in that you know you know U value or R value depending on how you want to calculate it in that wall system in a climate like ours is extremely important. When you put a hole in a wall, you know you need to make sure that that hole is um, you know is is, is it can work well. Um, you know, with the entire system. Great, perfect. Well, before we uh, get into too much depth on the path of passive house, let's uh, uh, talk with uh, Joe here a second. And Joe, how did you make your way to Mun Architecture? I am originally from Pennsylvania. Um, I'd say, perhaps similarly to some of the things that Scott had mentioned, just my draw to it was that combination of the creative and technical aspects. Um, I moved to Colorado just to uh, be a ski bum and work for the ski resort, but uh, studied uh, architectural and engineering, architectural engineering and sustainability for my undergraduate degrees and then continued on to architecture school. Um, I was mostly doing multifamily residential development down in Denver and then eventually relocated up to the mountains to go and work with Scott. Great. Uh, I understand you uh, also did some energy auditing and uh, other work That's in the... Right. Exactly, yeah. While I was um, in the sustainability program, I was working as, as an energy auditor, so I think that it gave me um, some good insight just as far as um, addressing building performance issues and um, I think it was just really interesting helping people bring their home up to a higher level of performance and um, you know I, I think there was a combination of things that I learned as far as issues with our built environment and our impact on the planet that kind of helped drive me towards maybe this niche within architecture of wanting to investigate high performance buildings and and what we could do to reduce our impact and make a, a high quality space that performs well. Interesting, interesting. So maybe a, a question for both of you, since you, uh, I haven't gone through architecture 
school. How, how much is building science really wrapped into architecture school? And uh, do you feel like you came out of your respective programs with, uh, with a good foundation? Or is that something that came later? Personally, I thought that it was neglected more than it should have been. And uh, I think that it, it took my own effort while moving through the program. I think that everyone has the opportunity as you go through that curriculum to kind of adjust it to what you are interested in. And I knew that trying to create high performance buildings was something that was driving me through the program. And so I had to kind of cater my curriculum to support that as well as you know the experience from energy auditing and then um, building performance institute does a certification that i had for a while um, so i i think that you kind of need to force it and i didn't think that it was built into the curriculum as much as it could have been and where did you go to school joe the university of colorado in denver great and how about you scott you know it's been a, a long time since i've uh, been in college and you know, I, my my recollection during that time is that, um, you know, we did not have advanced, um, you know, understanding nor, um, you know, energy modeling that, that I was aware of or, or anything truly with respect to, um, you know, how uh, how high performance, you know, buildings can be. Um, I don't believe that the lead um, program, at least, you know, we were never taught the lead program. Um, at, at our at, at our university at the time, um, you know, was was even there, and um, you know what what we really focused on was actually the how the building related to the site itself. It was more of using passive principles of just orientations, um, and and not necessarily getting into high performance, um, you know, wall systems uh, that that I recall. So. But I believe that that's completely changed. I think that the curriculums these days, from from what I've been hearing, and also looking at um, some of the you know resumes that we receive, um, that they that they are starting to work hopefully towards more of a as an education at a at a you know an initial level of, of how um, how good and, and how you know what I would say is is right uh, you know architectural you know principles and 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 techniques can be to to help continue to move forward um, you know a, a more respect for for the environment and the energy energy that that are used for these buildings interesting okay so how did uh, this passive house project uh, come to you well uh, we were uh, yeah we were interviewed um, by uh, you know by by Carrie and Matt I believe and they were probably looking at a few of their people I'm, I'm assuming and um, you know, when we actually were, uh, you know, started with them, you know, we didn't know what type of energy efficiency or program or certification that that we were actually looking for at the time when we started. Um, most of our homes, just to, as an FYI, you know, are are you know are, are five star plus, you know, energy rated her hers energy rated homes, or at least we're very familiar with that particular system. Um, for a majority of our homes. And um, so we knew that, and we do, underly, and underlying with all of our work, 
have, um, you know, high expectations and put out a lot of, you know, good details with respect to making these homes perform a lot better than what the minimum requirements are. So as it came to Matt and Carrie, we knew that we could have the conversation and we were ready to do so, but we really didn't know what we were going to end up with. And when it um, went down a different path and Matt and Carrie did a lot of research with respect to, you know, what types of systems that they wanted to implement. Um, that's when, you know, again, Enrico came in with, with his, you know, passive home certification and that's where it kind of, you know, started. Right. And uh, Joe, have you heard of or, or worked on passive house before this project? Um, not one that was pursuing a certification in it. Um, so I was certainly familiar with um, with Passive House and just from having researched a variety of different certification programs. Um, so I was familiar with it, but had not been involved in a project that was actually pursuing the certification. Okay. And so how did uh, MUN architecture integrate with uh, EMU systems? I think that we listened a lot, but to be honest with you, Joe had some really wonderful in-depth um, conversations and integrations um, with them, um, including reviewing of details and everything else. But Joe, why don't you kind of jump in and, and you, know, t you know, tell everybody, you know, what, what, what you did. Well, I think as as you mentioned before, Scott, you know, it's just a a collaboration, and so it was you know this team effort of us, Enrico, Matt, Kerry, um, Jared uh, on the structural engineering side, Zane, and you know we just had this conversation about how it was that we were creating a design that was efficient in plan. You know, we were looking at everything that we could do to just reduce that amount of, of conditioned space, um, looking at orientation, uh, how it is that it worked within the, the design guidelines of the neighborhood, which um, that that took some back and forth as well in order to get this roof form approved, which kind of has this this variety of impacts in terms of you know, we had identified direct gain as being one of our primary strategies along with this super tight building envelope. So making sure that this roof form was going to, you know, help us. So I think it's just this combination of things in plan and um, in section as, as we develop this design of trying to kind of get a favorable aspect ratio that was going to help us. And then just yeah working with all of our team members in order to come up with something that accomplished the aesthetics that they were looking for and was efficient in terms of the amount of condition space and um like scott had said before trying to make sure that uh we're maximizing that direct gain at the times that it's desirable but not creating uncomfortable spaces due to excessive heat gain or or glare so I think it's just this combination of things that probably could have produced an endless variety of solutions, but this is the one that we came up with. And I 
from what I've been hearing, it's a lot of positive feedback and people are really excited about it. Yeah, it definitely uh, looks looks uh, uh, quite nice so far. I, I was up there a week or so ago uh, and was able to take a look. Um, you mentioned the the roof. Um, is it, I guess, is, is there a uh, design vernacular, I guess, that um, you think works better from a, a passive house or a high performance home perspective than, than another? Personally, I think that when it comes to accomplishing a design that's going to be successful in, in terms of its energy consumption, um, I think is, you know, just going back to some of the things that Scott had said before about the way that the, the building is responding to the site and the climate, I, I think um, we may propose design solutions that accomplish what we want in terms of reaching those goals. Like we said, if we need to create, if we're trying to minimize the, the volume of conditioned space and project an overhang that's going to control the amount of daylight that we allow to enter the space during the times when it's desirable, it it can become a challenge when balancing that with, let's say, a design guideline that says that you have to have a 612 slope on your roof. And, and that was because of the Homeowners Association? Uh, correct. And I, I don't want to um, misspeak here. I, I think that their minimums were 612, but they were very understanding in our goals of what we were trying to accomplish and just did a great job working with us of in, uh, in, in allowing us to move forward with a design that was going to help us accomplish that. Yeah. But I would, I would tend to agree, you know, again, with respect to balancing it with, you know, snow loads and, you know, types of, volumes for instance on interior spaces that you know a lot um, you know a majority of our clients you know want to see and some expect in a mountain home where there is a, a larger volume of space over a, a a great room or a or a main gathering space or a lower roof or a ceiling height in a in a different room and when you're again in, in combination with requirements for different types of roof pitches we end up with, you know, what would be considered, you know, uh, you know, heat. We have to, you know, condition the space that we're created, the volume on the interior. And I know Joe worked very closely, again, balancing that that area with with Enrico. Um, and that was a that was a pretty um, that was a pretty, um, you know, it, it was an, it was a good exercise. And we have to do this. And he's like, well, I have to add that in in my calculations. And it was a um, it was a process, but again, I, as Joe had mentioned, we were very lucky that the HOA was very amenable and really understood our um, really understood our goal, and they 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 let us do some things. My guess is a flat roof, you know, square box is probably the most efficient home um, that you could possibly do for passive, but that's not reality up here. Yeah. Um, so a couple of questions come to mind. With regards to that, is um, one why do you think that 
this volume space is something that people are desiring, uh, especially in in those mountain communities. Well, I'll 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 take that on. Um, you know, when it when I look at you know spaces as they as they work their way, you know, through homes, um, it 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 just it just seems as though that a a great room, or at least what everybody's perception of a great room or or a main gathering space is what I like to personally call it, um, is that it it has a taller windows or it has a, um, a something different from, for instance, the the kitchen area. Although it's all one open space, for instance, a great room, um, you know, kitchen and dining spaces. There's not a lot of walls or partitions in more current designs with respect to that. Um, that um, space flow. However, when you're in one of those spaces and the ceiling is up or the floor is down, but you're still a part of the other spaces, it still provides a sense um, that it's a different space, even though it's all a part of the same area and, and it's in its, um, you know, as you, as you look at it. So I believe that personally, you know, some of the most successful designs seem as though that they're all open and free but when you're actually in a certain space there's a differentiation of the ceiling height or a window configuration or flooring material or a step in the floor that can provide a um, a different moment to um to react with um you 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 want to when you're eating you may not necessarily be you know you want to be watching the fire or if you're working in the kitchen you don't necessarily you know want to be you know, thinking about your 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 master bedroom or your main suite is what again I like to call it, M meaning that I, you can do a lot with architecture on a basic floor plan by moving volumes up and down within those spaces. Yeah. Um, before this passive house project, did was there a consideration of that of having to heat that volume space? Yeah, there was, um, and and we we. we we started to find out that at least in our climate and our um, our exterior thermal envelope, uh, we started to move away from a um, an attic space. We started to move away from details where you would have a, a drywall lid, and then you would have a, a you know a big thick layer of blown in you know cellulose insulation or you know, a bunch of, um, you know, thick bat insulation. And we started to, you know, take a line on the on the side of the house, you know, from the ground and then in section, draw it all the way around the house and make that line, you know, not uh, not be broken. And so what we did is we started to actually create more conditioned space by moving the thermal um, the thermal break out to the bottom of the roof deck. And we're using um, systems of you know closed cell and open cell insulation as well, and we started to 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 take control of the interior environment. And what that did for us is it allowed us to design systems in order to handle that new conditioned air. But it also it started to um, help us out with ice damming and roof problems that you find all over the mountains up here because you know heat is escaping out through can lights and those roof getting through the bad insulation to the bottom of the roof deck and then you get a freeze thaw cycle and you start to get ice dams by controlling that envelope all the way around 
we found as though our roofs are performing better. And, um, you know, we now need to take into consideration again, that, that volume of, of that volume that we've, um, the, the volume of air that we've, um, you know, created, but we find as though that it is easier to control the interior environment than of having to come back and, and fix roof leaks. Right. Interesting. Um, I'm going to go back to the, the windows now. I, uh, when I was there, uh, they were just beginning to install the, the windows. Uh, and so the, my first question maybe to Joe is, um, how, how was the decision made uh, not to go with the U.S. window, but to, to decide to go to a, a European-based window? Well, ultimately, I think that decision came down to the U factor that they were able to get out of them. Um, I believe that decision primarily came down to a discussion between um, Zane and Rico, Matt and Kerry. Um, so I know that we had looked at a variety of them. And I think it was just a decision based on quality and and the thermal performance that they were able to get out of those. Okay. Uh, just to yeah. throw out there, Zane is Zane Bishop with Bishop Built the Builder, uh, who we'll be talking uh, to later on uh, in the series there. So the, the other thing I noticed with regards to the windows uh, when they were getting installed is they're they're basically floating in the opening. They're not resting uh, on the mantle or the the ledge. Um, there, have you seen that type of install before? That was new to me um, when I went and saw them on site. It was interesting too, just um, seeing the additional blocking required in order to accomplish those openings and um, with the depth of this wall assembly. So there's certainly some unique details um, considering this, this wall assembly that it's been interesting to see come to life. Yeah, there were, uh, the other thing I noticed was um, the placement of the window kind of uh, in the middle of the wall assembly. So your, your wall assembly is a, a, a double wall assembly that's six, about 16 inches deep. Um, there, which we might want to talk about as well as how, how you fell on that uh, thickness of the assembly. But the windows uh, seem to be intentionally placed in the middle. Uh, did, did you have conversations with uh, EMU Systems or Rico about uh, why that, or was that a, a design decision? Or how, how did that come about? It was a design decision. Actually, at one point we had them uh, pushed further out in the wall assembly. Um, and I think it was just the decision based on um, the amount of sill that we were seeing on the interior. Um, so it does seem more appropriate um, now, now that they're actually um, going in that it's the, the placement that that it there at yep and then i think that you know by recessing those windows the opening itself um you know becomes a little bit more what we call like a punched opening it it, it gives a little bit of a deeper shadow line it takes a wall that is seemingly a you know big long flat wall and it allows it to have a little bit of 
um, you know, positive and negative, um, you know, spaces within it itself. So architecturally, it actually, you know, does a, you know, it, it does a lot of different things as well by centering it or placing it, you know, somewhere, you know, near the middle of the assembly. Yeah. Did you have to come up with uh, unique uh, water management details to uh, be able to have the continuity of your water control layer and and uh, air layer, air control layers with with the, that window placement? A lot yeah, of Joe, details, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of the details were initially provided by EMU, then went through a process of us and Jared, um, our, our structural engineer on this project. Uh, so just through those discussions, we refined those details, and then um, ultimately they've ended up as they are. Yeah. Is that uh, exterior sill sloped to the outside or? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And any kind of water infiltration, anything that we've ever done with a deeper or pitched opening, we will, at minimum, you know, run our seals out so no water is sitting. You will get, you know, wind and and you know, and, and wind-driven, you know, moisture up against those windows. Um, and again, anything that eventually will melt, we we got to you know pitch it away from the. Uh, you know, from the window itself, so it doesn't compromise, um, doesn't compromise the window. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because they, uh, since they were installed at this rough stage, when I saw it, it was all flat. But uh, so they must come back in and put another, um, another sill, I guess, there uh, that that sloped at a later point. Because well, let's, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure that that's the case. I mean, the opening, what's interesting is the opening wasn't flashed um, with tape products before the windows went in in this case, um, because I, I'm guessing because the windows are floating in the assembly uh, when they're installed. And then, uh, so it would be interesting to see how, how they get finished off and how, how that happens. Uh, are you involved in those types of details or did that all come from EMU? I would, I would just say again that it was kind of this collaboration where Enrico did provide those details initially as part of the requirements of us pursuing this certification and then we would redline them and then return them so we were involved absolutely throughout developing yeah. all of those yeah however so, they haven't we're, we're if, if we need to get back out and, and take a look at them then we we definitely will um in general, though, when it comes from, you know, window manufacturers, um, you know, wherever they come from have have their, you know, standard requirements and the way that they like them installed. And, um, you know, we work generally closely with the general contractor to make certain that they will, uh, you know, that they'll, that they'll ask us any questions with respect to that and we would provide them information. I know that the windows have been set just recently, so now you're making me nervous. Now i got to run out there. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the detail now, actually, because I was concerned too, and there there will be um, some sloped blocking as well as rigid in order to create that pitch. Cool. Perfect. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I feel better. Absolutely. I I had to look after we were talking about it. Yeah. Sorry to scare you there. <laughs> um, is 
I assume this is the first house that you've worked on that has had a, a wall system, a double wall system uh, that was 16 inches deep. Um, what were your thoughts uh, with regards to that and uh, how did that uh, impact or, or integrate with your design process? Hey, Joe, I'll start on this one really quick. So, you know, we never knew how thick these exterior wall systems, you know, were going to be or, or how thick they needed to be. And, um, you know, so that was a challenge. We had designed um, our home originally or the home originally with a with a typical a typical exterior in a two by six with a thermal break and, you know, high end insulation that was, you know, way above the, the minimum code standard. So we were quite surprised that we needed to you know add a whole nother wall in order to make this work but we were able to do it and matt and carrie were willing um you know willing to you know allow us to do that for them in order to to make their home you know perform um you know as as, as well as it's going to so that was a little bit of a shock but um i don't know joe what what else would you add to that yeah i think um I, I would certainly agree that we perhaps didn't anticipate the the depth of the assembly. Uh, I've I've seen these types of assemblies done in a variety of ways, uh, but when it came to this design specifically, I mean we had we had talked about how we developed this you know kind of compact efficient plan, and so you know when when a wall is double the thickness or more of of our typical assembly that certainly eats into a lot of square footage. So I think it was just making sure that we were still creating these comfortable spaces that were going to be appropriate for them while balancing that with their goals in terms of performance. Was the slab footprint uh, increased to maintain the designed interior square footage? I think it's tough to say because the design process is always so iterative that you know we're going through just many rounds of refining and so i think it's tough to say i, I think that we kind of had a placeholder in there knowing that it was going to be you know some amount thicker than our than our typical wall assembly um but I, I think it's difficult to say that just at the point that we knew what exactly the assembly was that we bumped it out in order to accommodate that. Yeah. Um, do you do many slabs up up in Granby? Is that the primary um, foundation type? It varies. Uh, has a lot to do with soils in the site. So it's it's tough, I think, to generalize on that. Scott, you have any input? Yeah, I mean. I, again, it's, you know, we get, um, you know, our geotech reports, um, it, it depends on the, uh, you know, the slope of the site itself. Um, it depends on the, um, you know, desired, um, you know, finish of that particular floor. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, a, a polished concrete floor, you know, to put that over a crawl space, you know, we have to add more concrete. We have to add additional structure in order to go ahead and polish that floor. There's a lot of different factors. Um, However, you know, is there one that is more cost effective than another one? And I think that in general, a poured slab on grade, um, you know, with the proper insulation and proper, um, you know, ledge details and thermal thermal breaks, you know, out to the exterior walls, 
um, you know, are, are typically more cost effective than, um, than, you know, framing a crawl space, at least from what we found up here. Yeah. Um, in this case, it, it was a slab on grade uh, with, you know, significant amount of insulation below and also at the, the edge. Um, had you guys used that level of insulation or do you generally insulate below the slab? So up here, you know, we've got um, high radon levels in a majority of the soil and the subdivisions that we do work. So before closed cell insulation really became a uh, preferable method um, of insulation for both, you know, vertical walls or um, roofs or whichever application that they're tied into, um, we would have to provide a, you know, a radon radon barrier um, in the slab and we would need to provide um, some um, exterior or excuse me underneath slab um, insulation in order to meet our um, required um, you know re required energy codes up here so when spray foam closed cell um, actually became again uh, an option for us um, it uh, there's a lot of contractors who readily go to that method because it does provide a, a radon a radon barrier a vapor barrier and it provides you know more insulation than than you than you can get out of a you know an inch of, of blue board and it's sealed so you don't have you can um you know you can uh, you know basically kind of you know kill kill two birds or three birds with with one stone and it, it's becoming the more favorable um method under slabs up here for sure at least with our documents that's what we specify just to explain that uh, quickly, it sounds like you're you're putting down your gravel layer and then spraying uh, closed cell foam directly onto the gravel layer uh, at you know at least three inches or so to get your vapor retarder as well as R value. That's correct, and you know the the specs that we've been seeing from our closed cell spray foam manufacturers, um, both since it's being in contact with concrete. Um, is that it's um, you know provides a, a really good strong uh, base for the for the slab to go on with proper um, you know slab steel and fiber mesh or whatever we would desire to put into that slab to 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 lessen the um, to lessen the um, the cracks. Yeah. And Joe, how much uh, uh, foam was put under this slab, and did you use the closed cell method or a different method? Um. I'm trying to recall what it was exactly. Uh, I know that in our details we're showing a foot, but that I would probably have to defer to Zane to know for sure. Yeah, my my understanding was uh, at least that it looked like it was about 12 inches to 15 inches of of foam, but it wasn't close up, correct? I I feel like when I visited while they were working on the foundation, I'm, I'm tempted to say that it was rigid, but I've, I thought that we had discussed using closed cell because of Zane's connection to that. Yeah, yeah that's one good thing about having a contractor who also owns a, um, a spray foam company. <laughs> um, he, I know that he talks with his engineers with respect to what is the best system that they believe would be for this particular application. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot there. Uh, it it was a rigid um, 
EPS, so expanded polystyrene type foam that was uh, super thick, and I, I just had never seen that before. I thought you might might uh, have a comment on that because it was just way more than obviously what we would put down here on the front range. Uh, even even if we were doing a passive house, it was uh, obviously more because of of their climate condition up there. Sure, there. and we were looking at R values that were what double code minimums, I think, that we were trying to get in order to reach this certification. So um, I, I forget what exactly we're getting out of EPS. I think it's R3 or something per inch. So a foot, you're getting R36 beneath your slab. It's it's pretty yeah. great. Yeah. And uh, do you think that they did that more, did that even probably a little bit more because they're also using hydronic uh, uh, a hydronic air source heat pump I might need you to rephrase the question I'm not sure I exactly understand what you're asking so you would normally put uh, insulation under the floor system there uh, when you're using a hydronic floor heating system but I'm guessing right. Uh, because they're also using a, an air source heat pump uh, to, to heat the fluid that's going through that floor, that uh, it might have been one of the rationale to get even more R value there, just in case um, it's more potentially more difficult to get that energy out of the air. I yeah, but, yeah, I believe that that would prop that that would be a good question for uh, for Enrico and his team. Yeah, more yeah. than likely that's uh, that that's the reasoning. I mean, again, the you can you can cross a threshold eventually of just you know more insulation than than it really gives you a you know a cause and effect type thing. Um, you know, the fact that maybe they didn't use you know spray foam is is spray foam insulation. I can tell you that we use the majority of it under in normal circumstances, and again, it's a higher performance than we found with with just a, um, you know, the, the blue board um, type under the slab. But to answer your question, more than likely that's the reason. I mean, they gave us, or we were, you know, you know asked to, to take a look at these types of, of details. And we made certain that again, the, you know, the instructional engineer didn't have any issues with that thickness or, or anything else. And yeah, if that's a, if, if more than likely that's the reason it was there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Scott brings up a really interesting point about the kind of diminishing return that happens on insulation. And I, I think that there's going to be, this is going to be an interesting case study just in terms of seeing how how successful this is in accomplishing their performance goals and, and what that threshold might be of, of what an appropriate kind of assembly might be for uh, doing projects like this in the future. Yeah. So that, that kind of brings up the the concept or question of uh, how much more does this cost than conventional construction in your area? Do you, do you have any idea of kind of a percentage of increase in, in construction costs? I was very interested to find out that the window package alone sounded like it was about 250% of the typical window package that they would have spec'd for this project. But I, I don't think that that number necessarily reflects 
what happens throughout. So um, there's there's definitely going to be an increase in cost. Perhaps Scott can speak more accurately to, to an actual increase, but um, at least the window package surprised me. Well, here's a here's a way to put Zane on Zane with Bishop Bill on the spot. You know, we're we're not as privy to that information, um, you know, on the front end as we as we work through some initial budgets, you know, with our clients and our contractors. Just really quickly, you know, we like to bring on board, you know, our our contractors or the proposed contractors early on in the process. So as we go through this level of detailing and figuring out, you know, who, what, where, when, why with the project, that they're well aware of it as they're, you know, building their budgets throughout the designing process um, and then the final construction documents. However, that said, you know, we might not know until the project is finished. We might not understand all of the level of additional details um, until, until it's actually all put, all put in the ground or in the walls and you know it's run for it's run for a few months and we know that it's actually performing in the way that we need it at that moment um you know again with our first pass of home you know we'll be able to give you some better answers and and we'll know how to have that conversation with our you know future clients um you know to be able to let them know that if this is important to you as your view is or is this is important to you as you know many as many bedrooms as you want you know, here's what you should expect um, in order to in order to invest into a into a home. You know, for instance, like this passive home. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's really uh, uh, great to hear that you're you're using this notion of uh, design integration meetings and uh, bringing that collaborative process uh, together. Has as this is this the first time? For you that that the energy component um, has been part of that design integration type meeting and coordination or does that happen fairly often yeah for us absolutely and this is this is our our, our first project at least under construction we um, are working for the um, snow mountain ranch the YMCA of the Rockies and have um, you know with, with Joe's help here on the on the on the call here um, you know, you know, created um, probably Grand County's first lead um, designed building. Um, that they after after the, the events of COVID and whatnot, the project was paused. However, it might start up next year. So we did a very significant building out at the Y, um, something called their Camper Hub, and it's going to be a lead. Um, I think Silver Joe's what we were uh, proposing. So we've worked with lead consultants and worked. Um, you know, at least for that particular project, for one that would be um, certified. Um, however, it's not built yet. Um, but as I mentioned to you before, um, HERS ratings and things like that, we've worked with a lot of energy auditors um, throughout, um, you know, typically after the home has been pretty much designed and then they come back and we work with the details that we were proposing. And again, most of them really line up well with with the goals of a, of a you know five-star energy rated home for instance but yes this is the first time again we've done a lot of front-end coordination to work on the types of details um in order to to reach the goal that that matt and carrie want and it, it's an eye-opener listen I, I as i mentioned before I, i'm dangerous to know a lot of things a little bit about a lot and this was um this was definitely an incredible 
um, eye opener for us. And, you know, I can't wait to hopefully get a lot of opportunities to do more in the future. Yeah. Well, that, that's uh, a great segue to, to kind of my last uh, question here. And the unfortunate uh, fires that happened this past summer, I think probably are giving you uh, a lot of opportunities uh, to design uh, some of the housing that's going to uh, replace what got burnt in those fires. Uh, do you have uh, things that are that have come from this uh, cursed Stroop passive house that you think will become the norm in your philosophy for building, helping to design and build uh, some of these new houses moving forward? Yeah, absolutely, and in fact, I was absolutely you know, amazed with respect to the amount of homes um, that were lost during the fire that were completely off grid. Um, we have um, a, a lot of folks that are reaching out to us of homes that are on, you know, large acreages out at the end of roads that don't have any service. And they were running their own, um, you know, geothermal systems or they were running their own um, you know, PV systems or whatever it was. And they were these little legacy cabins that they probably built, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And they were only, um, you know, summer use cabins and they would probably start a fire. And then as generations continue to use these cabins, they started to implement the only type of energy systems that made sense. Again, you know, PV and, and, and geothermal or, or whatever it was. So we are seeing actually a lot more opportunities for um, you know the rebuilds of these homes, and lucky a lot of our clients you know are are, are wanting to rebuild. They they're on, they're just not going to give up you know their land, and they want to have now a, a legacy building. But the first thing that I'm asking is you know where are you? Are you tied into a to one of the local municipalities up here or the grid systems? And and a lot of them are. And so now we're having a more in depth um, conversation about you know what style of home and and and, and how how are we going to heat it and how long are we going to use it and everything else. So it actually has changed, which is actually a beautiful thing. If if we get an opportunity to create these homes and make them more energy efficient, and here's the second time around, and the and the trend is leaning more towards um, an energy efficient way or a high performance way. Let me tell you that's a, that's a kind of a, a win win even after a a terrible loss like that. Um, I, I, a lot of these people, I can't imagine what they're going through, and we're we're lucky that we get an opportunity to help. In fact, on a side note, you know, we've been helping people, you know, with free foundations for their HUD, HUD housing and stuff, um, in order just to get them through the period of time when they're not going to have a, a home. And you know, we're we're local firms, and and we, we want to give back to the community. But it is a wonderful thing to be able to see that that you know it's not necessarily about the size of the home but people are willing to go down that road of a completely off-grid um off-grid system and we're we're excited to see that yeah yeah um it it seems uh i mean what you said is, is wonderful it it seems still that uh obviously the client is driving what they want and kind of this balancing act uh, from architecture and builder perspective of what 
what becomes the norm or kind of the the mod the the bottom line of where where you're going to say no I won't I won't do that project if you just want a two by four wall for example or something you know uh, whatever that bottom line is do you think that that bottom line is has changed fundamentally for for the good or I mean forever or uh, is is still the uh, the client really driving that? Uh, you're going to design to what they they want, I guess. So in a perfect world, everything would be <laughs> everything would be a passive or off-grid home or the most energy efficient home that we possibly can do with with all of the proven systems that are out there. Um, and that's a perfect world. But the reality is is that you know we live in a harsh climate. Um, it's it's a very difficult place to to keep warm and to get to. Um, in, in certain areas of the county. Um, however, at least for us at Edmond Architecture, what, what we try to do is provide, um, you know, a minimum level that is higher than what the true minimum level is, um, again, for energy code in our county, period, right? It's You're going to get a high-performance home um, at, at a certain level at minimum here at MA, and we take pride in that. And can we skimp on insulation? Can we skimp on details? Can we skimp on not having to provide a thermal break if the county says, yeah, don't worry about it? Um, we can't, but we don't. So it, we start at a really high level of a, of a minimum base performance for all of our homes. And when I'm talking with a client or speaking with somebody who might be in the energy business, but I can let them know that it is actually less expensive for you to run this home when you're not here. Or do you mind going down that road? They are the first people to say, absolutely, let's go. You know, if my if I have a 5,000 square foot house and my energy bills are $80 a month on average per year, that's what they want. And you know what? That's what we provide. And we feel obligated, to be honest with you, you know, to do that for the better of the community that we live in and the environment that we're that we're trying to react with and be a part of. However, at the end of the day, our clients, you know, help guide us and we help have that conversation with them um, in order to find the right solution. Every project is different, but again, if we, the first thing that gets pulled out of a budget on our, on our plans is not the thermal, um, you know, the thermal value or the performance of the home. We, we, we would rather look at different avenues first. What a wonderful way to 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 say that. Um, okay, to finish up real quick, what um, what one thing do you think you learned uh, from this project, this uh, Stroop uh, Kirsch passive house that uh, that maybe surprised you and you think you'll you'll use again? Go ahead, Joe. Um. I think I'm having difficulty narrowing it to one one thing. I think that we just I think that this project itself is just going to be a great case study for us to have in the back of our minds. You know, I think as Scott's saying, you know, we're always implementing passive strategies and and responding to site and climate in our designs. So I think that Matt and Carrie just gave us the opportunity to take it to a higher level because they were willing to invest their money there. They could have probably done something more extravagant in terms of, of what the home was. 
um, but they they were willing to um, just just back up their uh, decision to to try to create something that was going to be a, an energy efficient building. So I think that uh, it's difficult for me to narrow it down to one thing. I just think that it's going to be a good case study for us to reference in the future. Yeah, that holistic systems thinking. It's hard to to take one component out of it. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's the best. What what I would like to say is probably something that I didn't necessarily learn off of um, you know that particular project, but it it definitely reinforced my understanding and true belief is that you know you're not going to have great architecture without great clients. And again, when Matt and Carrie decided that they wanted to go down this road and they wanted to go down this road with us. As Joe had mentioned, we took that challenge and that um, you know amazing opportunity and we're learning and we're going to run with it and we're going to you know hopefully continue to be able to have more intelligent conversations about you know how we got there. But it, it's not just us. It's it's definitely people that are willing to to, to take to take that step and maybe a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a risk. And um, it just reinforces that fact to me. And it, that, that's truly the, 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 the center of, of, of why we do what we do. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, guys. I really appreciate the, the discussion, uh, your willingness to, to go to, uh, you know, potentially some hard conversation, but also uh, impactful and meaningful conversation. Well, we appreciate the opportunity. And Joe, let's go check out those sill details really quick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks again, Robbie. It was, it was great to have another conversation with you. This was excellent. Okay. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by Build Tank Inc., to see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.